and welcome back to Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition, hosted by Robin Bronk. It's your moment to hear the unfiltered backstory of Hollywood's biggest stars. So sit back, relax, and listen in, as today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Judith Regan to the hot seat. So you grew up... Yeah, I did. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Yes. And, uh, and um, Pittsburgh, Massachusetts. Wikipedia says you grew up in a large, extended Sicilian and Irish family. I think you're Jewish, though. <laughs> my mother. You're my member of the tribe. Yeah, my mother. So, a Sicilian Jew. When you're the young Judith in Massachusetts, what do you think you were going to do? First of all, I had no idea. I knew nothing. I got yelled at a lot. Nobody really paid attention to me beyond yelling at me and telling me I had to get all A's or they would kill me. That was my childhood. My entire childhood. That was good parenting back then. I don't know why we can't do it now. Yeah, there was no there was no real discussion of anything other than you have to get all A's. You have to be the best. And there was no discussion about anything. And nobody cared about my feelings. Nobody was interested in like whether or not I liked something or I cared about something. We were incidental to, you know. Do you, th- I, do you think that your parents were weighing their words with, with you? I mean, mine were. Never, never. My parents just, no. My father, he was pretty quiet. He read a lot of books. He stayed in the background. My mother ran the show. She told everybody what to do, what not to do. And basically, the way I was raised was more or less get out of the house, get out of our hair, grow up as soon as possible, get all A's. And if you don't, uh, you will be punished. (laughs) Well, I I think that that's your next child rearing book. (laughs) As my mother used to say, and, you know, very sadly, she passed away in the last couple of weeks. you know, she used to say to me, if I hadn't raised you like this, you wouldn't have turned out the way you did. So I said, exactly. <laughs> so right out of college, was it National Enquirer or Geraldo? I can't. Re- no, I started my illustrious career as a reporter at the National Enquirer in the 70s. And I like in to say the heyday, the in the heyday of the Enquirer, when they had, you know, the largest circulation in America. And, uh, you know, long before the Internet, long before uh, people had computers, I used a manual typewriter and I was never a typist because when I was young, if a woman or a girl, as it were, took typing, you were destined to work as a secretary. And I really regret that I didn't take typing. I think that is the, my biggest regret in my life is that I didn't take so, typing because I was going to be damned if I was going to be, you know, t- learning to type and sitting in a secretarial pool somewhere because I wanted to achieve far greater things. Not that they're greater, by the way. I wish I had learned how to type. And, you know, the assistants that I've known and the secretaries that I've known are far more talented than I am. Most of them have phenomenal skills. And I wish I wish I had those skills now. But I, I didn't want to do it at the time because I didn't want to be stuck there. And to this day, I regret it. And to this day, I type like this. And you still don't know what happened to the quick brown fox. When he no, I don't. I, like, what did no, happen? Only no. those of us who took <laughs> typing really know. You're that. lucky. You're lucky. <laughs> so when you're working with the National Enquirer in the 70s, what was it like? Before you were born. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what was that like? 
I loved it. I loved it. You know, every job I've ever had, and I, you know, I've had lots of minimum wage jobs, whether it was scooping ice cream, I ended up running a Carvel ice cream store or working. Carvel. Carvel. I worked in a five and dime store in the hosiery department. I've had a lot of jobs. I mean, you know, I, I worked as a maid for a while. I loved all my jobs, except for that one. I didn't like that one because I had a horrible boss. But I, I've always taken something, you know, uh, that was of great importance to me from those jobs. And when I was at the Inquirer, A, I really learned how to get a story, how to get, you know, people to open up. Wait, talk about, I mean, a lot of people don't know what the Inquirer is. Well, Generoso Pope, who owned the National Enquirer at that time, was a brilliant man. And what, what was the Enquirer? What is it? It is was it- a tabloid. It was a tabloid, a weekly tabloid. Uh, he invented impulse buying. He invented the racks at the supermarket checkout counters. And the story of Generoso Pope, which might be mythic, uh, but at the time, we were told that he had graduated from MIT when he was 19. He was the scion of the famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, Pope family in New York City. Went to Horace Mann, graduated from MIT at 19, worked for the CIA, did psychological whatever, and really understood the psychology of impulse buying and invented these checkout counters, which was the essence of impulse buying. And so as you were checking out your groceries, you'd see, you know, Elizabeth Taylor got fat, Elizabeth Taylor can't find love, you know, all the great tabloid headlines. So and I, did they, and, what, what did they do for you? I, so you get there and you show up. Yeah. So I had, I had been an English major at Vassar and, you know, I really loved that. And they I would loved, let Vassar girls go to the national. They English. recruited from the Ivy League schools. Yes. And they had what was called a whiz kid program. And they took uh, students from Ivy League schools who were good students, who were largely financial aid students, you know, kids who were hungry, kids who would basically, you know, be clever enough to figure out what to do to get the story. And they paid us a lot of money on top of everything else. We got paid extremely well. And there was no place on this planet where you could get the salary that we got at the National Enquirer. But the trick was they put you through a kind of Hunger Games audition. Really? Yes. I mean, he he was way, General Pope was way, 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 way ahead of his time. And at at that time, um, they would bring, you know, 10, 20 journalists from around the world, you know, with the promise of you know, multiplying their salaries by 10. And they would put us on a tryout. They put you up in a hotel and then they would give you impossible assignments. What was your tryout? You know, they wanted me to track down Mia Farrow and ask her why she divorced Frank Sinatra, things like that. And then they would judge you. They uh, At the time, I think John Wayne was in the hospital and they wanted me to track down his doctors and find out why he was in the hospital. It was these impossible, insane assignments. And for whatever reason, and this was before the internet, this was before you could just Google something, right? Here you are. So you don't know anything. Your assignment was Mia Farrow. Yeah, and John Wayne. I mean, I had a lot of assignments. And How'd you do it? Well, there were a number of different things that I did. One of the things that I was pretty good at was 
In the case of the John Wayne story, I rented a limo with, there was a doctor who was the head of the hospital where he was, who was on his way to a conference in Las Vegas. And during that period of time, you could call somebody's office and they would actually tell you where their boss was. Like it's unimaginable today. You know, oh, he's on a plane. He's on a really? You know what airline he's on? I'm supposed to meet him. And they tell you. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, it was a different era. It was a far more trusting era. Anyway, I was there with a sign with his name, got in the car with him and started asking him questions and got the story. So he didn't. Did he know he was meeting you? No, no. I mean, it was all like ridiculous. It was Hunger Games. So we had to do crazy stunts and you know, if you wanted to track somebody down, as I did with Mia Farrow, I uh, got to Martha's Vineyard in a snowstorm and went to the local florist. And I figured they they knew where she lived and ordered dozens and dozens and dozens of flowers to be sent to her and then followed the truck. So we used to do crazy things like that. But I was in my early 20s and oh, yeah. it was an adventure. The main thing that I loved about being at the National Enquirer at the time was they ended up, because I hated doing celebrity stories, I just hated it. They put me in charge of doing the human interest stories largely. What's because, the wackiest thing that you covered? I mean, I did everything from people who were attacked by great white sharks, people who are buried alive. You know, people who had gone through like extraordinary circumstances and had survived. And the ones that I really loved, there were two that I really loved. And I ended up doing stories about them for a long period of time. One was Siamese twins who were what is called craniopagus Siamese twins. They were attached by their brains and uh, they were going to be separated. The parents had made the decision to separate them. And this was, of course, imagined that they were a year and a half old making a decision like that. It was quite an amazing, dramatic thing. And if they survived that operation, they were going to be the first Siamese twins in history to survive that operation. And for whatever reason, I've had one of those amazing lives of such astonishing good fortune that things, pennies from heaven kind of like. You know, I always had good fortune and bad fortune usually at the same time, but I wanted to interview the doctor who was one of the main doctors in charge of this operation. And I was boarding a flight from New York to Salt Lake City and who should sit next to me, but this doctor. No. Yeah. Just by, I mean, there was no reason to believe that he was even in New York because the operation took place in Salt Lake City. But there he was. And that's what my life has been like. You know, a lot of what happens is people just have good fortune. I've always been able to be open to the possibilities. And you can't really doubt anybody or anything because you don't know where great stories come from. You don't know where great adventures come from. You don't know where great friends come from. You don't know what great human experiences, where they come from. So I have always been open to the possibilities of anything. And on that particular day, who should sit next to me but this doctor? It was just unbelievable. But But you are. I mean, actually, that that hit a chord with me because you're Judith Regan. And when I met you, I was just in awe. 
but you were like, let's be friends. And you were so open to that. And that's just, I think, an awesome thing. It's, it, it encapsulates who you are. But I also think that's how people should live. It's a great way to live, right? Because I've always had a wonderful time, right? And if you're open and you listen, you can learn a lot from everyone. And, you know, my life has been enriched by the people around me, all of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah. Uh, you learn as much from some bad experiences as you do from the good experiences. And I just kind of accept that that's the way it goes, right? That is the adventure that we call life. So then you go, you're with the National Enquirer, then you go to Geraldo. Talk about Geraldo. At some point. Geraldo. <laughs> yeah. uh, what made you go? An adventure. It was something new and different. And Geraldo went very tabloid, right? So he's a cat who has had nine lives, for sure. Right. He's reinvented himself. He's gone from uber liberal to conservative, from Democrat to Republican, from this to that to this up, down, over, out. You know, he's a master of reinvention. And at that time, he was doing, you know, he he started to do more tabloid stories and more tabloid kinds of, you know, ratings oriented material. And during that period is is when I worked with him. And what did you do? I produced, I mean, I learned, I would say I've learned a lot from everyone I've worked with. And Geraldo was a master of the game. He was really great at coming in, sizing up the situation. You know, you'd give him the notes, you'd give him ideas for questions, you'd give him the rundown, you'd write the text, you'd write the script. And then he would take it from there. He was, you know, the reason he survived for so long and has had such a long and amazing career is because he was a quick study. He was really bright and he adapted to the changes day to day and the changes in the culture. So you produced, was Geraldo sort of the first of, it was sort of like the first reality. It was, it was talk show and reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the time the, you know, the TV was changing and he changed with it. Right. So he's the most challenging episode with him. Oh God! I mean, we oh, we did everything. One. We did. I you know. I always I always took from my whole life experience. We introduced the Siamese twins that I who did survive the operation. By the way, we introduced them, and they were separated. Two Siamese twins who were still attached. That was one of the shows, and you know there were there were a lot of complaints, you know, from people saying, oh my God, this is exploitation. I never viewed it as exploitation. To me, it was like the height of human drama. What would it be like to go through life conjoined with your sister? It was quite an astonishing thing, or to be separated when you were once conjoined. And it was really dramatic. And they, you know, were quite taken with each other. And and it was kind of beautiful. There was another show that we did that I never forgot. And this was the story of, it was a crime in, I think it was in Salt Lake City, where a young high school kid had been working in a record store and he didn't come home from his job. So his mother went looking for him and someone had come into the store. I think there were two of them. And basically they were holding the employees hostage in the basement and really did 
horrendous, horrific things to them. And they ended up killing the mother and pouring acid down this young man's throat. And his father was a doctor. And they were condemned to, I think that that state was a death penalty state at the time. I don't know if it still is, but he was against the death penalty. And he actually went to court and testified that they shouldn't be put to death. And he came on the show and, you know, it was a show about the death penalty and the pros and cons and how different people felt about it. But I'll never forget that man who had such incredible humanity that in the face of losing his beloved wife and his son being so catastrophically injured and a lifetime of pain and suffering could be that generous and, you know, ultimately have a kind of forgiveness. It was amazing. You know, there were people along the way because I did so many human interest stories for so long and interviewed, you know, thousands of people over the last 50 years. I've met so many amazing people. And the most amazing are the ones that despite the horror in their lives and despite the heart-wrenching evil things that people have done to them and to their loved ones, that they could somehow find a way to still feel joy, feel love, and to go on. Like Those were the people that were the most inspiring. There was a woman, and this was when I was at the National Enquirer, and my editor, this is when I was a reporter, had assigned me to find another angle to a story that had received wide attention. And that story was about a little five-year-old girl who was dying, as the headlines said, of old age, a disease called progeria. And he said, why don't you go and you know figure out a new angle to this story? Because most of the stories that I read were medical oddity stories and this like horrible disease and blah, blah, blah. And it was everything from the New York Times to Time Magazine. It was featured everywhere. So I went to, she was in a convalescent hospital in San Diego, and I went there. And the story, as it was reported by mainstream media, was that she had been left there and deserted by her mother. But in fact, and in truth, after I tracked down her mother, who was living in a trailer in the state of Washington, and I knocked on her door, and she didn't want to talk to me, and she was upset by the, you know, how the media had portrayed her. She eventually let me in and we sat on the floor in her trailer. And she told me one of the most heart-wrenching stories that I'd ever heard. And it was really the story of her daughter, much loved by her, getting sick and no one having a diagnosis and being accused of child abuse and all of what she went through and taking a Greyhound bus around the country looking for a cure, a solution, a diagnosis, and finally finding one in San Diego when she had, and by the way, when the daughter got sick, the father took off and left her with this child. And she also had an older child. And she ends up in San Diego. She falls in love with someone else. She's giving birth to her new child and feeding this girl with an eyedropper like every hour on the hour because she couldn't eat anymore. And she had to do so much to try to keep her alive and to keep her muscles moving. And, you know, describing the day that she decided to put her in this convalescent hospital because she just couldn't take care of her anymore. And then her husband decides 
they have to move back to the state of Washington and the devastation that she felt when she had to leave her. And then, of course, the husband ends up leaving her. So we reunited her with the daughter, who was now nine pounds, blind, deaf, you know, and dying. And the daughter, you know, cooed and knew exactly who she was. And it was like a really dramatic moment to share with her and her son, who was maybe eight or nine or 10 at the time, who became hysterical. And, you know, these insanely dramatic moments in people's lives that you're privy to, that you're in the room witnessing with them. That's what the inquirer was for me, that I had that opportunity to to be in the lives of people who had been through hell, had been mischaracterized, misunderstood, abandoned, violated in so many ways. And yet, you know, it was a beautiful ending because she did get to see her daughter and, you know, was reunited with her in a really powerful, incredibly moving way. And that, you know, that was my National Enquirer experience. So for me, I loved it. It was a beautiful experience that I got to share those kinds of moments with people. Did you ever come head to head with Geraldo on a story or did you, were you always in sync with him or how did that work? I mean, we would have discussions and, you know, what you were you throwing chairs at each other. No, <laughs> no chairs. <laughs> so he, he was a very smart guy. He understood what made a good story. And he was very up for doing tabloid things. You know, that's what he wanted. He wanted ratings. He was all about the ratings. You know, television, network television was all about selling. That's all there was. was Selling stuff. Yeah. That's it. It was just about selling things. There were, for those of you out there who don't know, there was three networks and maybe Fox if you had a good reception. Yeah. And it was all about selling laundry detergent. (laughs) So now we get to Simon and Schuster years. What made you go down that path? I had a two book deal with Simon and Schuster, and I was in the middle of writing a book. And that's why, first of all, that's a huge thing. Most people in the world in history don't have two book deals with Simon. Yeah, I was very for I was very lucky. And what was uh, the two book deal? The first book was a story about what happened to the American family over a fifty year period. And I'd love you to write a sequel to that, by the way. <laughs> Uh, At the time, it involved some travel because I was focusing on certain families. And my son got hit by a car and had a horrible head injury and had a lot of problems. And so I had to stop traveling. So I called Simon & Schuster. I said, I have to give you back the advance because I can't do this right now. So they offered me a job as an editor acquiring books and said I could work from home. Which was absolutely novel back then. Very novel. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I did. And then um, I became very successful. That's how that happened. And talk about, you were, you edited, uh, you found, did you find Howard Stern for his book? Did he find you? How'd that happen? Um, I just called Don Buckwald, his agent, and said, I want to do a book with Howard. And Don put us together in a room and we hit it off. And in that book is the bestseller, Private Parts. And you also did the follow up, Miss America, right? Yeah. Two books with Howard Stern. What I mean, Howard Stern. (laughs) You know about Howard Stern. (laughs) Well, I do. It's just funny because my brother is works for Howard Stern. (laughs) My brother is Benji. I'm out of the, yeah, yes. 
<laughs> I work on different ends of the entertainment industry. My brother is Benji, so he's worked for Howard. For, and they just had a special 25 years of Benji. Like, <laughs> people have been funny. So, so when you met with Howard, what, like, well, you went after Howard for the book. Yeah. How'd you convince him? It wasn't, did it take convincing? You know, I, I think we just, you know, we hit it off and we made a deal and it was that simple. You know, I mean, uh, it was, we were compatible and then I ended up actually moving in with Howard for a period of time uh, at the end to kind of get the book done because we had a deadline and it wasn't happening. And we had a really phenomenal. Pretend I'm the National Enquirer. What was that like? It was fabulous. It was just fabulous. (laughs) Howard was very funny, you know, funny and flirtatious and Howard. Back in those days, Howard was, how would you describe it? I feel like you actually also, I mean, I know he was big back in those days, but you really were an early adapter to understanding because after, you know, my brother had been working for, but reading private parts opened up this whole other, you know, he was the shock jock. He started shock jock, but he was so much more as we know now. He is so much more. Yeah. I mean, I think private parts, the book um, that I worked on with him really changed the trajectory of his career and the perception of who he was. And I think because we focused a lot on his personal story in that book, which became the movie Private Parts, and it was really funny, innovative. Uh, the narrative had, you know, his parents interrupting. Other people that he was telling stories about would interrupt the narrative and say, Howard, that's not what happened. It was graphically interesting. We had a really good graphic designer who designed it. And at the time, I mean, when you look at it now, it doesn't look, you know, particularly innovative. But at that time, it was very innovative. And it was also a great human story, which is what my point of view has always been. And I love that about Howard. Howard was really great because he basically said, look, you're the editor. You know, you understand books. I don't know anything about books. Tell me what to do. And the most successful people that I've worked with over the years have always been the easiest. Just tell me what to do. That's it. And there's no fights. There's no... They are the easiest people because they do the work. Howard is incredibly disciplined and hardworking, right? He would do his radio show. And right after the radio show, I'd get in the car with him and we'd go out to Long Island and we'd sit and work until he went to sleep, basically. He worked. He really did work tirelessly. You know, it's effortless looking, but there's so much behind. How do you use a life? How do you figure out what to encapsulate with Howard? How did you decide? Everybody's different. You know, it's a process of, you know, talking to them, interviewing them, probing. And we never really disagreed about much because he had unbelievably good instincts. He really understands storytelling. It's what he does all day. And the only thing that I was uncomfortable with because I was publishing Kathy Lee Gifford and Rush Limbaugh, and he wanted to say really insulting things in the book. He wanted to make fun of Kathy Lee Gifford's children. And in particular, his son, uh, he ridiculed him. And I said, Howard, I will not allow this. I'm sorry. These are underage children. And I just, I mean, I don't even want to repeat what he wanted to put in the book, but it was not 
something that I could handle, right? You can do anything, but you're not going to drag the children into it. Not with me anyway. So we toned that down and the Rush Limbaugh stuff, he refused to change and left that in. But so had you been, had you already done the Rush? You were in the middle of the Rush Limbaugh. I published Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern on the same day. And it turns out they both had the same birthday. They were actually very similar and they hated each other because they were both big radio show talk show hosts. And by the way, Rush Limbaugh's audience, much bigger than Howard's, much, much. What? He sold five times more books than Howard. But, you know, if you're New York centric, you don't realize that because there's a and that was country. Too. I mean, Howard Stern is much more of a national figure now. Well, Rush is dead now, but Rush is dead. <laughs> but yeah. in New York and L.A., yes. But Rush Limbaugh's audience, you know, people forget there is a country between New York and L.A. Well, what and was- that country is vast and there are hundreds of millions of people who live in America and they listened much more. Rush Limbaugh's audience was much bigger than Howard's, you know, what's and your, people what's don't your realize favorite that. personal Rush story. Rush piece of his life. You know, Rush was very sweet to me, right? He, I think, you know, he was a very socially, he was extremely shy, right? I mean, here was a guy who did a radio show for what, four hours a day? He did a monologue. Howard has a co host and he had other people who were characters on the show. And he had guests on the show. And, you know, there was a big difference between their style. And Rush was alone in a room talking to himself and very shy, painfully shy, afraid of people and a real social outcast when he moved to New York. He had no friends. You know, he had a hard time, I think, in New York, which is why he left and ended up doing the show from his house in Florida. But he was very gracious to me. What was you know, he had his politics. It was always interesting because there was a big dichotomy between his politics and his shtick and his real life. Right. He was deferential to women. He was like incredibly polite. I always got amazing thank you gifts and notes and so on. He was very kind hearted to the people around him. What about to you? I mean, was he pretty open to you? Was he an open book or was he? I mean, he was shy. He was sensitive. He always wanted me to travel with him and do things with him and be like his companion. And um, I wasn't able to do that, obviously. But, you know, he wanted to have, I think he really wanted someone to be close to. I think he was really lonely in New York when he was there. Very lonely. And also he was really ridiculed. I remember one night we're having dinner in Elaine's and one of the editors of a top, very um, liberal magazine came in to the restaurant and came over to the table and spit at him. Yeah. Yeah. And his reaction was to be scared. I mean, he was he was not for a guy who was so combative and mean spirited and, you know, kind of he could be really tough on the radio you know, criticizing everyone and mocking people. He was not like that in his personal life. He was, I think, a guy who'd been bullied by, probably bullied by his father and um, maybe by others because he was always overweight. And uh, 
you know, like there's always a big dichotomy between the real man and the public persona. I'd say in his case, there was a big difference. You know, I never agreed with his politics and he knew that. Did but he, he really believe never in politics. Did he really believe in it? Or was it part of his thing? His I think just... part of it was part of his shtick, and then it became him, you know. But it, it was shtick to him for a long time. And and I don't know in the end because I lost touch with him. But obviously he became a drug addict, isolated himself. He was an oxycontin addict. Did and you have I any, had a kind of tragic any... end. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you have any window into that? Is drug addiction? No, but it doesn't surprise me because I think that in essence, he was somebody who'd been bullied. He was painfully shy. I think he had a lot of deep psychological wounds that were never addressed because of probably his politics and his fear of exposure and his fear of public humiliation. And I think he had a lot of demons and a lot of fear and a lot of pain. And, um, you know, some of it, I think I saw in him, he used to come over for Thanksgiving because he had nowhere to, you know, he had a very lovely mother and a brother who was very devoted to him. I'm in mean, a nice family. I heard stories about his father. You know, he was in a lot of ways, sad and lonely. Did you, do you ever with your subjects that you're working with, do you ever get, how do you draw the, I mean, you said Rush wanted you, I mean, he probably wanted you to be his best friend. How do you draw the line? It must be hard. You know, I've always tried to be as compassionate as I can be, given the circumstances. I had a newborn baby. I had children. You know, I had a son who was 10 years older. I had a very full job. You know, and he always wanted me to travel. Come, come away for the weekend with me. I, I just couldn't do it, right? Because I had other obligations and, you know, I had other things going on. But I tried to be kind. I tried to include him in things that I did and, you know, invited him over for some of the holiday meals and that's it. And what about with Howard Stern? Was there anything, what surprised you most about Howard Stern as you're working so closely with him? Uh, what surprised me the most? I think, you know, he was brilliant. Howard was a quick study. He was very curious about everything. And I was amazed that he could put in the hours that he put in. He had unbelievable stamina. He had unbelievable stamina. I guess so I think, bad. though, that, you know, the thing is, like, I looked at somebody like Howard, and I, I have, I think, a lot of stamina as well. <laughs> you know, I can work and work and work and work and work and keep going and going and going and doing all that. But Unlike Howard, and this is true, I think, I think this is true for a lot of women. At the end of the day, I had to go home and spend time with my children. I just had to, right? So could I have worked another four hours? Sure. But I had children who required affection, who required, you know, time together and doing things together and raising them. And it was very hard being a mother alone with children and all of the responsibilities and obligations, along with all of the responsibilities and obligations of running a business. So I had to draw the line. I had to go home and play with my kids. Howard didn't. That's the difference. He could keep going and he could 
put that aside. But he had Allison at the time, his wife, who was very devoted, an amazing mother, very loving person. And, you know, women, so many women that I know, not my, not my daughter-in-law, who has my incredibly devoted, loving son, who's a wonderful husband and a wonderful father. But, it, you know, it's still rare. It's, still, it's more common than it was, for sure, for sure, for sure. My son is soon to be 42 years old. So 42 years ago, it was my job. There was no question. You know, there was no question. It was all my job to do everything. And of course, with growing feminist attitudes and ideas, it was also my job to, as you know this very well, pay for everything. <laughs> so fine. I'm very grateful that I became successful and I was able to afford my children. Very grateful for that. But And it certainly made things a lot easier for me because I was able to afford childcare and I was able to afford to send them to camp and I was able to do these things. It is still, I believe, the greatest impediment to a woman's success is that she loves her children and wants to be there because back then there was a whole discussion about quality versus quantity time. There is no such thing as quality time. Okay. Children just want to be with their parents. They just want to be with them and spend time. I wish there'd be a bank of time. I know. So that it's, it's like you can just take things out of the bank of time when you're. I know. There's that children's uh, poem, you know, I wish I could go back and do the little things you asked me to. Yeah. When That's life. That's life. I said, you know, I said to my daughter, you know, when you look back on your childhood, do you regret that I didn't have more time for you? And she said, are you kidding? <laughs> you would have suffocated me. <laughs> we were just back in New York, we in our house and, you know, the kids' rooms were all there. And I called them. I go, you know, I just miss you. I miss you when I'm here. And they said, what? Both, all of them, three of them. Wait, what? What? What are you talking about? And I was like, oh. It's hard. It's hard. It's harder for women. It just is. I mean, yes, some men, but in my experience, the men who were the fathers of my children had no problem not being there. It's also so funny that, you know, we are sort of this first generation of career moms in a lot of ways, or two career households, or and it was still up to the moms like to figure out the birthday party schedule. Oh, party. please. Yeah. Uh, uh, you th any man that I ever procreated with knew the names of the dentist or the teachers or the friends? Yeah. I don't think so. No. Yeah, it is weird. No, no, no matter how no, my job we to are. do everything. But that's not true with my son. That's not right. true with him. No, no. He is amazing. As, as his seven-year-old son said, Dad, I love you infinity. He was like this. I love you infinity times infinity, infinity times. He's a mathematician. <laughs> I love you infinity times infinity, infinity times. Yeah. No, I said to my son, I had a great father, I have to say. My father was Atticus Finch. He was loving. He was kind-hearted. There was not an ounce of misogyny, not a speck of sexism in that man's bones. He just didn't know what it was. He treat, I had two older brothers, 
very high achieving. You know, my brother Leo went to Yale. My brother John went to Brown. They were all straight A students. They were amazing athletes. They were great musicians. They were they were like great in everything. But he expected me to be great in everything. I I didn't get a pass on anything. And he treated us all exactly the same. There was never. And by the way, my father never said one word to me about what I looked like, which I was very grateful for, right? Because have you read a good book recently? What did you think of this? What are your ideas about that? There was never a conversation about my looks, you know? I, I, I was so grateful to have a father like that. And, and never did, my father never did anything wrong in his life. Never. He was never unkind. He was never out of line. That was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It's a great daughter. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I had some nice men around me growing up. My and uncle. You also, he raised, a, your parents raised a great kid who has great curiosity. You have great, and I think that's also part of your success is your great curiosity. I'm afraid to go into those places, which I got attacked about. I did it. The, um, your OJ book. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. So I really wanted to hear from him. I wanted to hear what he had to say about the trial, about the night of the murders, and about what had happened. Let's not forget he was acquitted. And that conversation, Oprah at one point said that was the interview she really wanted to get. You know, that was a conversation that Every journalist who was chasing that story, and there were many for years, everybody was dying to get it. I figured out how to get it. I made a deal with him to tell his story. And as part of that, he would sit for an interview, which I wasn't going to do. Barbara Walters was supposed to do the interview. And at the 11th hour, a couple of days before the interview and everything was set up, she bailed on it. And then I ended up doing it for Fox because it was originally going to be at ABC through Barbara Walters. So there was no one was up in arms about that. But the whole controversy was a ginned up controversy that had nothing to do with reality. The reality was there's absolutely nothing wrong with interviewing OJ Simpson. (laughs) Nothing. And in any universe, any television uh, station, Entity, any journalist would die for the opportunity to sit down and talk but to him, the ask him questions. The controversy, it's all actually almost hard to think that because today it wouldn't be, I don't think. No, no. And by the by the way, even then, where was the controversy? And certainly many, many, he was an acquitted, he was acquitted of the murders. We'll start there. But further to that. How many reprehensible human beings, if you view him as reprehensible, had written books? And how many publishers had published those books? There are countless, countless entities throughout history. And by the way, if you look at the behavior of everyone from Charles Dickens, who was reprehensible, by the way, and abandoned his family, uh, you know, and was running off with underage girls, to I mean, there are so many throughout history. People are mistaking the opportunity to hear from someone who was, like it or not, historic 
and in the media. And that trial was an historic moment in American history. You can't discount that. And for whatever reason, the work that I did resulted in that man sitting in a chair and talking about the murders, which he had never done before. And you can watch the interview and judge for yourself. But anyone who has seen that interview has said, how could you say anything other than he's guilty? And he's so guilty. And how he behaved in that interview is astonishing because he's a textbook abuser, taking no responsibility, blaming her for everything, how he frames the story. It's fascinating, fascinating. And law enforcement, there were several people in law enforcement who came to me afterwards and said, wow, that is a textbook case and a textbook interview and should be studied. So as you're preparing for this, why did you do it? Why OJ? Because it was one of the biggest stories of our time. And did it resonate with you at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was curious. I really wanted, I wanted to sit down and say, so what happened? Well, what and of course he had his own spin on everything, right? How did you undo the spin? You had to kind of undo his spin. Well, you know, he, he basically, I, I didn't, I had to listen. I asked him a question and he would talk and talk and talk and talk. And because there was no judgment and I wasn't sitting doing my usual follow-up questions, he just kept going and going and going. And that was the way to get him to keep going and going and going, right? But if you watch it, it's riveting. It's riveting. It's absolutely riveting. And he's terrifying to watch. And like so many people who commit these crimes who are such narcissists that they never really see, he had no empathy for her at all. None. And that's clear when you watch it. Clear. So, and But as in real time, as you're interviewing him, what's going through your head? Are you, are you seeing this picture painted that he actually... Are you, are you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was clear. I remained expressionless. If you look at me throughout the thing, he couldn't. Was that hard? Was that hard to do? I mean, I had to be disciplined about it. At one point, he leaned over and said to me, when you came here today, you didn't think you'd like me, but I changed your mind, didn't I? Did he? No. (laughs) No. You are the best. No, he confirmed you know, over and over and over. All you have to do is watch him, listen to him, what he said, how he says it, his inappropriate responses, his utter lack of regard and empathy for his victims and for his own children, his lack of accountability, his cavalier nature, his, you know, focusing on, you know, I just went over there that night to get me some. That's what was on his mind. So when you're, so during the interview, are you realizing that, this is history. No, I did. I was like, I can't even believe this. This is, it wasn't, I mean, it was difficult to sit there because it was so painful to listen to. And the interview and was had such lack of remorse. No, we did it live to tape, yeah. but it wasn't aired live. Yeah. It's really staggering. And I think it's an important piece of television to understand how a man can 
you know, justify his really appalling, horrifying criminal actions. He justifies murdering two people, basically. After the interview was over, how did he, he just left or you, you, you now have a full picture of him? Yeah, I was exhausted. It was like a four or five hour interview. I walked out of there and I was exhausted. I was just exhausted. And how long between recording it and airing it was there? And did So it was recorded on a Sunday. It was supposed to air that, I think, Monday and Tuesday, because they were cutting it in a truck outside while I was doing the interview. And then as a result of this ginned up controversy, which we'll say for another day and what happened behind the scenes. Oh, wait, no, no, no. We got kept got da, 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 da. Uh, no, I haven't told that story yet. It's an unbelievable story. But it gets canceled and doesn't air for 13 years. And how did you finally get it aired? Did you try and get it aired? No. What happened was I got a call from the CEO of HarperCollins because I had been running Regan Arts at the time, Regan Books, through HarperCollins. And I, I, I was long gone at that point, right? And he called and he said, oh, I have some good news for you. We are going to air your OJ interview. I said, we, as in the royal we, you and like Queen Elizabeth, what? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We, Fox, we're going to air the interview. I said, well, that's funny because we don't have the rights to it. <laughs> I do. You might want to go back and read your contract. You have the rights to it. Of course, Fox had to pay me. Mm -hmm. They never did for the work that I did. And um, that's what happened. I said, well, you can do whatever you want, but we have an agreement. And when it airs, that's when I'm owed my fee for producing it, hosting it, blah, blah, blah. And um, they thought that they could basically get away with putting it on the air without paying me. Baby and then, And then they wanted somebody else to actually look like they were hosting it at one point. Yeah. I said, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. So anyway, everybody got their pound of flesh. So, and, and then, then they said, well, then we won't air it. I said, oh, well, I guess it won't air then. Sorry, I'm not giving in. And then what happened? There was a lawsuit. No lawsuit. It aired. The book. The book, um, The Goldman Family sued OJ for the rights to the book and got the rights to the book. And then they published the book through a small publisher who made a lot of money. And they collected whatever they collected. The whole thing was very bizarre. How do you think it would happen today? I think it, it would, uh, you know, because it had nothing to do with the content, it had nothing to do with the book, it had nothing to do with this. None of this had anything to do with what people think it had to do with. So I assume the same thing would happen today. I think it would be much harder to gin up a controversy, but you can gin up a controversy about anything if you have the right media empire to do it. You can say the sky is green and um, people will believe you. So you've worked, you've worked for media empires, you've carved out your own empire. What's your advice to young writers today? First of all, if you're a writer, you have to do it as a labor of love. And it depends on the kind of writing you want to do. But if you're committed to being a creative writer or somebody who wants to 
you know, write books or do journalism. It's such a hard road now, and it's a hard way to earn a living, uh, much more challenging than ever for a variety of reasons. But it's one of those things, if you actually have something to say, if you are a true artist and you have something to say, then you must say it. And there is no advice. There is no positive or negative idea or thought or anything that I could possibly say that would get in the way of you accomplishing that. Because the people who are driven to be creative and if they're writers and they they must, then they just must and nothing will get in the way of that. But, you know, some people want to figure out, you know, how do I make money? How do I make money? And that's a, that's a tough question. That's a really tough question. Last question. Growing up, what was your favorite book? What was the book that opened your eyes to say, I want to do this. I want to write. There were a few. I would say Horton Hatches the Egg. Love <laughs> that. Dr. Seuss. Love that. One. Obsessed. And all the Pippi Longstockings books. That is why we are besties. <laughs> all I want to do is run away. I know. And <laughs> go somewhere the, else and have that house with my monkey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just love books, you know, when I was younger and I'd spend a lot of time in the library reading and it was a great escape and it was a great way to try to make sense of this chaotic maddening world that we live in. Um, you know, and books are still a way to make sense of it all. I, as I get older and I'm turning 70 this year, I don't understand anything. I mean, I understand far less today than I did when I was five. I was so sure of myself when I was five years I old. I know, I know. I'm so really- the more you know, the less you know. And the oh, only that would be a good PSA campaign. <laughs> The more you know, the dumber you are. The dumber you are. It's true. I don't know. You just have to. uh, I think that the key at this point is to do what you can, give as much as you can, do as much as you can, and forgive as much as you can, and enjoy the ride because it's a ride. Ride. Well, we didn't hear. I just want to touch on real quick your newest book with Doug Shum, but just came out right power <laughs> and it was published today there it is oh muzzles up today is the day the 50 truths the definitive insider's guide and may i say this is a beautiful thing he had a very amazing Doug shown Doug shown Doug great Schoen, political strategist ama- and you of course know him from your wow, years my god politician. i can't believe i actually got to meet him at your house that was so he's cool. an icon in the world of politics he also happens to be a phenomenal human being and i just want to read to you because this is a, a very moving thing he wrote the dedication i happily and lovingly dedicate this book to my mother carol shown who has taught me more about life than anyone I have ever known. Now, I had the privilege of meeting Carol Schoen, who was a professor and a delight and so bright and so interesting and so much like Doug. And she was such a wonderful, wonderful mother to Doug. And Carol passed away this past weekend. So it's it's like for me to publish his book today within days of his mother's passing. And she meant so much to him um it's a very powerful thing and it's also your mother just passing she did yeah 
Yeah. I can't wait to read the book. Actually, I need to order right now because that's my world. I am the wonkiest of wonk, wonk, wonks. You'll love it. You'll love I it. It's, love it's a it. great read. It's fun. It's easy breezy and you'll learn something and he has great stories about the most powerful people in the world and the less. I will always, in the most politically correct way, sit at the knee of Doug Schoen as he talks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I will see you later. I can't wait. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition featuring Judith Regan. For more information about the Creative Coalition, please visit our website at thecreativecoalition.org or visit our social media. That's at the Creative Coalition on TikTok and Instagram and at the Creative C on Twitter.